Today's scripture is Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. It can be found on page 830 of the, um, the Bibles in the pews. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, and with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alex. So we have come to the end of the book of Ephesians. We are, in fact, reading all but Paul's final salutations, and we'll be getting a new series next week. But um, I wanted to give some thought to where the letter has brought us so far. This has really been a letter expounding the church. It's been an uplifting letter. It's been telling us about God's plan to build a new society, conceived before creation was even uh, formed by God at the beginning. It's a, a community defined by the person of Christ. There are no distinctions of race or status or sex. He is wanting us to be worthy and fitting, to be people of unity and purity, to be uh, a people of mutual submission, to live out mutual, submittive, mutual submission in our relationships. And all of a sudden, when we get to this point in the book, just before he finishes, he starts to talk about battle and armor. Now, some of us probably get this romantic storybook ideas about battles with armor. But in Paul's day, there was no romantic notions here at all. He's describing war. And the tools of war with the terminology that he is familiar with in his day. Now, as a prisoner of Rome, he even may have been tied to or chained to a, a soldier, a, a Roman soldier at this time, or at the very least, there were Roman soldiers that were guarding the door uh, where he was being held in house imprisonment. So after this uplifting vision of the people of God, after he's brought us to such a high point in his letter, he goes and gets dark on us. Paul reminds us of the opposition. Right here at the end of the letter, he introduces the devil and the devil's hostility against the purposes of God. Paul wants us to open our eyes to see a greater reality and to respond accordingly. So we're going to dig into this passage, looking at two aspects of this greater reality and then concluding with a third. 
First of all, we're going to look at what it means to be grounded in this reality. Then we're going to look at the relational nature of this reality. And we're going to conclude by looking at how this reality is pressing. There is a pressing need to engage with this reality. So three, two main points here, a grounding in reality, a relational reality, and then we're going to conclude by looking at what it means to have this pressing reality upon us. So Paul introduces this new reality in verses 11 to 12. I'll, I'll read them to you. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul is wanting us to see there's a spiritual reality in play. This is important. He doesn't want us to over-spiritualize what he's saying. So let me say that again. Paul absolutely wants us to see there's a spiritual reality in play, but he is not asking us to over-spiritualize what he's saying. It's not like there's some ethereal thing, battle going on in some, some wild place out there and that with special mystic powers, our eyes are going to be open and we can watch that going on. He wants us to see there's a spiritual reality in play, but he doesn't want us to over-spiritualize this. And this text makes this very clear. Let's look at what he says and what it means. In verse 12, again, we'll notice that there are two realms where he looks at the power of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we see these two realms straight away. These two uh, places where there's dominion over the dark world and in the heavenly realms where uh, Satan has authority in the small piece of the heavenly realms. So that's important. So the devil has authority over these two realms. He rules over the powers and authorities of this dark world. Now, we can understand how Paul would see that. I mean, he's a prisoner right now. He's experiencing the oppression. He's experiencing that dark world. And in fact, if we jump across to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see that Paul has a lot of experience with the oppression of the dark world. Let me read verses 24 to 27 to you. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in dangers from rivers, from bandits, in dangers from fellow Jews, from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, at danger from false believers. I've lailed and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I've gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. Paul knows what it is to be oppressed. And... We can see, in a sense, that that exists in our world today. There's a, uh, in fact, I looked up where are Christians most persecuted? Where is the dark forces, the oppressive powers of this world most powerful? And if you believe in some of, believe the veracity of some of these sites which categorize this, and I've no reason not to, number one on that list is Afghanistan, an oppressive regime. Uh, and number two on that list is North Korea. So we can say, yes, there are dark places in this world where authorities oppress and come down against the people of God. 
But I think it's also local too. Uh, there's, a, there's a political theorist by the name of Hannah Arendt, and she talks about the banality of evil. You've probably heard that expression before, the banality of evil. And what she really says is that whenever there's power structures which people can move into, she studied Nazi Germany, she studied Eric Eichmann and his role in the Nazi uh, regime, but she generalized that to look at this idea that as you move into power structures, as you are included in the benefits of that power, you tend to start minimizing the negative and accentuating the positive. You start to put on blinders. You start to be sucked into, drawn into, the, the, ignoring the oppressive pieces because of the bits that work for you. And I think that happens in local churches. You know about controlling churches. If you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you're very familiar with, with that seductive nature of being part of something that actually imploded uh, in the end because it was too controlling. It happens in marriages with dominant spouses. It happens in the workplace with oppressive work cultures. It happens through peer pressure when kids succumb to things like uh, sex or drugs or uh, to certain images of what bodies should look like. And it happens in a social pressure context too. Do I have enough things? Is my house big enough? Do I look or present the way I should look? That external pressure that comes in us, those types of power that manipulate and distort and oppress us. Any abusive power structure finds its roots in the work of the devil and the devil's minions. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Not that this is some out there, far away, mystical thing, but that any, any abusive power structure finds its roots in the work of the devil. And he goes on to talk about this other spiritual domain, the spiritual forces of the heavenly world, the, the, the evil spiritual forces in the heavenly world, and how they uh, create spiritual oppression. And we can look at, we can look at this in terms of the natural being underpinned by the spiritual. There's a reality that, uh, that comes out of the, both the spiritual oppression that works through the authorities of this world, but also the spiritual oppression which we can experience in our own lives, spiritual doubt. Does God exist? Does God forgive me? Does God really care? Does God love me? Am I his child? Who has not had those doubts at one point or other in their life? Who doesn't, even if they don't wrestle with them uh, intellectually, wrestles, doesn't wrestle with them emotionally on some level? Or spiritual discouragement. I am not good enough. I'm a failure. I try, keep trying to do the work. I try, keep trying to be faithful, but I keep failing. I keep finding myself being discouraged, lacking joy, being anxious. I find myself in a place which doesn't befit what I think God would want me to be. I am a failure. I'm not good enough. And there we are, of course, confusing the difference between worthy and valuable. Because the truth is we're not worthy. We are not worthy to stand before the Lamb or the throne of God. But my gosh, are we valuable to God? Are we so precious to Him? So precious, and we say this every Easter, that... He gave his only son. And then if there's one thing you take out of the gospel and make it personal, it should be that. That God gave his son for you. For you personally. 
You're immeasurably valuable to him. And of course, there's the other, the other way that the, the, the heavenly powers, the evil heavenly powers, try to corrupt us spiritually, and that's with spiritual pride. That's by telling us that we are good enough, that perhaps we're better than, more worthy than someone else. Now, all of these ways are spiritual attacks that the devil uses to try to undermine us, to try to, to bring us down. These spiritual attacks come both externally through the manipulated power structures of this world, which he sucks us into and sometimes we're even part of, and also spiritually or internally. But the point here to start, as we start to look at the armor, is not to go to some over-spiritualized mystic realm. This oppression is happening here, in this world. Those spiritual forces are in this world that we are living in now. So the work of the devil and his minions is to thwart what Christ is doing. Christ creates community, calling for equity between race and status and sex. The devil destroys community, stirring enmity between races, statuses and sexes. The devil, the Christ builds community, calling for unity and purity and mutual submission. The devil destroys community, stirring resentments, unholy passions, dominant, controlling and manipulative relationships. Christ, we see, is the creator. The devil tries to tear down and destroy through physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual oppression. The devil is unscrupulous, wicked, cunning and manipulative. It is a foolish, self, overly self-confident person that forgets the destructive nature of evil and the power of the devil and his minions to bring this about. So that is what we're calling grounded reality. That's a bit of a downer. And then we move on to the part which you're all probably so familiar with and memorized as a child and all the pieces about the armor of God, which I would call a relational reality. The power of evil, whether we like it or not, <laughs> is stronger than us. So how do we stand against such a powerful evil? And verse 11 makes this clear, along, repeated directly in verse 13. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. And then in verse 13 again, therefore put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And I know what you're thinking. You're hearing that and say, oh, the full armor, the armor. Let's put the armor on. Uh, that's a good thing to do. But the most important part about this is not the armor, it's who the armor belongs to. Your armor is paper thin and will not withstand the devil. But the power of God is immeasurable, measurably stronger. The armor, as it's listed here, can in fact be a distraction from the main points here. It's tempting to read this as a manual, a list of skills that we can develop a little bit of truth, a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of peace, a little bit of faith, a little bit of salvation, a little bit of God's word. Let's put them all together, mix them up, and we'll see what happens. Now, I sort of implied there God's word at the end there, but let's look at those things again. Whose truth? 
My truth that I want to make up or God's truth? Whose righteousness? My righteousness or God's righteousness? Whose gospel of peace? Mine or God's? Faith in who? Myself or in God? Salvation from whom? Myself or from God? And the sword of the Spirit when God speaks and acts, is it my words, that I, my spirit that I trust in, or God's? So the armor, in fact, represents the power of God made possible through relationship with God through Christ. And it's an all-encompassing relationship. No one would go into battle just wearing a helmet. No one would think, oh, I got a little bit here. I'm good. I, I, no one would be stupid enough to do that. But so often we don't see this as an all-encompassing posture. This is the soldier walking into battle. That, uh, using the strength of God. That's the important piece here. The armor means a full and complete engagement or preparation or relationship with God that allows us to do that. So we will. We'll jump through each of those. But as I jump through them, I'm going to stress the relational nature of the armor. The girdle or the belt of truth, and it's better translated as a girdle because it actually holds up the tunic. So you can imagine how important that is if you're in battle and you're in the middle of a sword fight and you start to trip over your tunic which is getting in the way, you need something which is going to hold it up. The belt or the girdle is basically underwear and it gathers up the tunic so that you can fight unimpeded. And it's called the, the girdle or the belt of truth. And what it's saying is you need to have a, a good perception of who you are and who God is. No self-deception, no false projection. They stop us from walking in an unimpeded way. Any addict, any addict knows this, and guess what? We're all addict to some besetting sin. We're all trapped in a cycle that we, can't, uh, we find difficult to break away from or find freedom from. And the question is, can you acknowledge that to yourself? Can you acknowledge it to others can you, who can hold you accountable in love? And can you acknowledge it before God? It always blows my mind. God who knows everything and his people say, I can only talk to God when I'm feeling holy. That's such a deception. The whole perception of that is, is horribly wrong because in reality, at our core, we're always broken and we have, we're riddled with sin that, that we may not even see. So we have to learn to sit in the presence of God, not as right now, in this moment, I'm feeling pretty good. I've done a few holy things. I feel like I can talk to and be in the presence of God. No, we've got to learn to feel comfortable sitting before God as broken, wretched, sin-riddled people. Can you acknowledge it before God? Can you wear the belt of truth? Notice it's not the failure of the sin that's impeding. It's the failure of the ability to acknowledge and deal with it, particularly before God, but also with yourself and with others. Walking a lie is like walking into the devil's lair. Relationship requires honesty. And you know that anyone who struggles with pornography or gossip or anger or laziness or anxiety... They know that if they can't acknowledge it, if they can't confess it, if they can't sit before God with it, they probably can't deal with it immediately. But they need to lead to sit in the presence of God with it. Trust in him, which brings us to the next one. The breastplate of righteousness. 
Now the breastplate sits on the front of your body and it protects the major organs, the heart and for them the stomach or, the, or the, the bowel, the part where they felt their emotions. It's what pumps the blood and keeps you alive and sustains the psyche. It's the major piece of armour. And for right, when Paul talks about righteousness in his letter, he's not talking about moral righteousness, but imputed righteousness, a fancy term which means the righteousness which God gives to us. And if we are standing against the devil, we have to be cons consequent, we have to be confident in the fact that that righteousness has been imputed to us. That we stand before God and we stand against the devil, not in our own righteousness, spiritual pride, and not lacking righteousness, spiritual doubt and discouragement, but in the righteousness of Christ, which was imputed to us on the cross, given to us on the cross. Both those other two options are traps. You can see the devil working subtly here, right? He comes in and says, look, your personal righteousness is little more than rags. It's not good enough. And of course he's right, but he's, he's tricking us again in that trap of worthy and valuable. We are so valuable that Christ would go to the cross to impute his righteousness to us. And it talks about the shoes. The boots of readiness uh, for the gospel of peace, coming from the gospel of peace. Readiness to share the gospel with others. Now this isn't people who have gone and trained in apologetic strategies. Apologetics is just a big fancy word for intellectual arguments that explain the truth of Christianity as it stands up against other worldviews. This is actually the willingness to explain the hope within. It's going up and saying, hey, this is how Christ has worked in my life. I spend time reflecting on how God is working in my life and I share it with you. So we've got both things going on here. We've got this engagement in the Great Commission, of course, the sharing of testimony, which is what we're trying to do in the church on a monthly basis. Hear the stories of how God has worked in personal life, but also... That act of constantly reflecting on and seeing God work in your life and that desire to understand it, experience it, and share it with other people means you're always constantly sharing it with yourself. It empowers us to preach and encourage ourselves. Now, are you looking for God to share? Are you looking to share God's work in your life with others? Are you adopting that posture that becomes God-aware at a personal level. Relationship of any substance over time inevitably is infused with history and with hope. History and hope. And that's what testimony is, isn't it? I look back at the history and it gives me hope to move forward. And as you're engaging with those shoes of readiness that come from the gospel of peace, readiness to go and tell that to other people, you're also of course, preaching it to yourself. So we move on to the shield of faith. Now, most of you know that Eskimos have many, many words for snow and that the Japanese have many words for rice. Well, guess what? A warring culture that used shields have many words for shields. And the temptation might be here to think of Captain America with his tiny little shield running. That's not the shield that's being referenced here. It's possible to lose something in translation. 
This is a large, the large Roman shield, about four and a half by two and a half, that's sort of square or rectangular in shape. The one that is often used in formation when seizing a city or held up to stop things coming down. So you protect yourself with it, but you protect the people around you with it as well. So the shield of faith. Now it would be another way of thinking of that is those riot shields that you see the police use where they stand in formation to stop things being thrown at them. Now, by faith, we lay hold of God. Faith meaning trust in God. Trust leaning into God. Trust for God to provide. So how does our faith grow or trust? Now, I don't want to lose this idea that it happens in community, that those shields of faith protect us and protect the people alongside us. Us walking and us trusting in faith does protect those around. It has an effect on the community. But I want to, it is a singular you that's used in this text. So I want to use a reference, a story, which I think is really powerful, of catching how we grow in our faith. There's a famous story of a, uh, a trapper who was going to Montreal, and I may have used this story before with some of you, and he, he realizes that he's not going to be able to row across the river that takes him into Montreal because it's frozen over. He doesn't know how frozen it is. So he's nervous about putting his faith on the river. But he knows he's got to get there or he's going to freeze to death. He's got to get across to that city. So he takes a small step and he sees if it's going to crack and he takes another small step and then another small step and he gets about halfway across and he hears this rumbling and this sort of like crazy noise and he's like, oh my gosh, the whole river's about to implode. And then he hears this bullock train with six bullocks pulling this wagon full of logs that have been harvested come screaming down the bank and go right across the ice and up the other side without anything happening. So Lemurius, oh, maybe this ice is stronger than I thought it was. Now, the temptation, of course, is to think that he had no faith, but he did have faith, didn't he? He leaned in, he trusted, he walked, he stepped, and he saw the shield of the person standing next to him. So both his little step of faith, you know, next time I'll trust this river a little more. So those acts of faith are how we develop the faith. We come to the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation. In our church, we've tried to move away from that, using the word, not the term, but the word, because it seems so narrow. Salvation is an all-encompassing term when it's used in the gospel, using applying to saved, sanctified, and glorified. So it's talking about both the, the moment we decide, the struggle and the improvement in our walk, and then our final removing of all the dross. So we talk, talked about the bigness of salvation, how our story effectively is becoming more and more and more part of God's story. How not just that moment we gave our life to Christ or realized that we were Christ's child if we grew up in the church, not, the, not just the slow learning of how to walk in his ways, but also that final entry into the new kingdom when we lose all the dross, all the junk that's slowing us down. The helmet of salvation is that constant reorientation to God's path. It's calling, it's obedience, it's practicing being faithful, 
And of course, it's relational. It's relational. Relationship of obedience as an expression of love. So I'm hoping you're seeing as we go through this, this reality, this strategy to defeat the devil's schemes is all about putting on not the armor of God, but the armor of God. So we come now finally to the sword of the Spirit. As we said, when God speaks, he acts. Word with Spirit has power. Now you've probably often heard as we go into this, if you've heard this sermon on this text before, you've probably heard people always quote how Jesus used Scripture when he was fighting off temptation. And that's certainly true. But Jesus also used Scripture when he was teaching. Is it not written? And he also used it when he was distressed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, Jesus doesn't, have, doesn't use an intellectual understanding of what Scripture says in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Jesus embodies Scripture Jesus the man embodies scripture as he walks through temptation, as he walks through profession, and as he walks through his emotional life. He is totally encaptured and wrapped up his life in spirit word. And there's a call for us to do the same. When you join the army, you go up to basic training. They teach you how to hold a gun and how to shoot it. And after that, they teach you a few things, like maybe they help you be a medic, or maybe they help you be a cook, or maybe you're a radio operator. And they also do this other activity, which is sort of like how to help you be discerning in difficult situations, like don't kill innocent people, or don't leave a brother behind. There's sort of like an ethos that gets put in you. And it's similar in some ways as we join the Christian army. We get the very basic training, don't murder. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery. And then we get this sort of vocational training, in a sense. What does it mean to be faithful, to be relationally engaged in God as we walk through our marriage and our, our jobs? And then we have this other, more difficult realm, right, which so many of us find so much of our time caught up in, the discernment of what to do in, in complicated, messy, ugly situations. And for that, we really need the heart and the mind of Christ. We need to be infused with the Word of God. So we need the Word of God for all three of those things. We need the training that comes from relationally engaging in the very basic pieces of obedience, that basic training in the faith. And we need that relational training that comes from what does it mean to live out my life faithfully? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a counselor? What does it mean to be a teacher? What does it mean to bring my faith uh, over and around that? But then finally, how do I deal with the hard and difficult, complicated and messy situations that I face all the time? And you, you're not going to find the answer to these really tricky questions written literally in the text of Scripture. But you will, in the text of Scripture, develop the mind and the heart of Christ to be able to engage and enter into those ways, in which, ways which are faithful and true. So in summary, the armor represents a relationship of truth with God, dependence on God, trust in the dependency of God, obedience as an expression of love to God, and the development of discerning eyes that see the world through God's eyes. It is relational. So I hope you're not seeing this as a list of do's or don'ts or strategies or techniques. 
I'm hoping you've seen this is a, a long-term discipline. So we're going to move now to this idea of a pressing reality. Because how would you all do if I said to you now, all right, Rob, Kyle, Rob, too many Robs, Alex, go out, put on some armor and go out and fight in a Roman uh, gladiator cont contest. I hope you'd be pretty uncomfortable. You'd be pretty unsure of yourself. Like, put on the armor. Where does the girdle go? I'm guessing the breastplate goes here. Which way does the helmet go? I have no idea how to use a sword. Many of you would not even be able to bear the weight of the armor. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament story of David when he goes to fight Goliath, that's his exact problem. He says, and he's talking about real armor, not metaphorical armor. This is too heavy. It's uncumbersome. I have no training in this. I can't use it. And that would probably be our experience. Armor is not light, nor is it necessarily easy to put on. Learning, developing, framing our lives around, being immersed in the Word and the Spirit are not things that happen overnight. You just can't put them on when you need to run out to do battle. The word discipline is an important word in the Christian walk. We need to develop a discipline which in constantly helps us evolve, grow, mature in our relationship with God. But things get in the way. Things get in the way. Some of the things that get in the way are what I would call those pressing needs that are really idolatries. I've got to finish this essay for school. I've got to finish building this shed in my backyard. I've got to make sure the, the yard looks good. I've got, you know, people, I, I need to be, um, I, I need to get ahead in my career. Whatever it is, or whatever the momentary pressure that drives you to do something else instead of spending time reflectively in God's word, spirit dependent, stops you from asking the question even, and that's really where we're at now. Why don't we even ask the question, what is faithful here? What is faithful here? Because most of the time we don't really want the answer. We're sort of faithful enough. But do we really want to lean into word-driven, spirit-filled encounter, which might tell us that it's something different? The other thing is that some of us just lack self-control. And to that I say, pray for the fruit of the, Holy, uh, fruit of the Spirit, because God will give it to you. Ask for self-control. Work on turning down idolatry. Make behavioral changes, not just stoic intention changes. Oh, I really wish I was more spiritual. I wish I spent more time in the Word. I wish I did this. It doesn't work. You have to say, what's getting in the way and what do I need to change? God, tell me. What's getting in the way? Do I need to go to bed early? Do I have to change my level of commitments? Do I have to practice saying no? What do I have to do to change the way I'm approaching this relationship. Now, in closing, I know it's been a long, a long sermon probably, but I do want to give you a little bit of time. I'm going to give you just two minutes, and I want you to ask those two questions. What is getting in the way? What idolatry is getting in the way of the very simple question, the very simple practice of spending word in spirit, time inward with spirit, prayerfully with God, and what one thing do I need to change? What one thing can I change to, to up the ante a little bit, to move closer to God, to commit more to the relationship? 
Because I don't think those pressing idols really are more important to us. We just feel the pressing need and nature of them. But what I'm trying to explain to you now is that this relationship with God is pressing. It's not something that you can leave for the battle. It's something to engage in, to frame up. Or maybe another way of saying it is the battle is already there. So please spend a little bit of time just asking what idols are getting in the way of me simply making the commitment to spend time in word and prayer with you? Do I need to pray for self-control? And what behaviors can I make to, to start moving towards you? I'll give you a minute. Father, we've only spent just 60 seconds with you and before you as we ask these questions. I do pray that you will not just let us walk away from here hearing another sermon about how we need to be closer to you, how we need to be people of word and prayer, how we need to continue to develop deeper and more, more meaningful, more influential, more connected relationship with you. But really, we can start to make those small steps, those changes. I pray for self-control, for the routing out of idols, and for behavior changes that can really help us take one more step towards you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.